This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Dark's Pandemonium Carnival, featuring wild animals of the jungle, the magic mirror maze, and St. Anthony's Temple of Temptation. Dark's Pandemonium Carnival, coming for you this autumn. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. And this week, it's a wholesome Halloween on Pod Cemetery. We are kicking off October with kids' horror movies, with 1983's Something Wicked This Way Comes and 2009's Coraline. Getting right into our first movie, 1983's Something Wicked This Way Comes, directed by Jack Clayton, written by Ray Bradbury based on his novel, starring Jason Robards, Jonathan Price, Diane Ladd, Royal Dano, and Pam Greer. Of course, Something Wicked This Way Comes comes from Macbeth. The line that it comes from is actually said in this movie by the pricking of my thumbs, Something Wicked This Way Comes. This script is actually older than the book. It was originally written in 1958 for Gene Kelly to direct, uh, and that never happened. There is a series of issues with getting this movie made, and so Ray Bradbury just said, fuck it, I'll make it a book, which is what he did. And then ultimately, now they have to say that it's based on the book. How funny. Yeah. Uh-huh. What is Something Wicked This Way Comes About? An evil carnival comes to town, preying on people's souls by granting them wishes. We've seen this before. Now, here is the baffling part. This movie, we find out as we sit down to try to watch it, is not available anywhere to stream. You cannot... Get it with any subscription network. You cannot rent it. Yeah, what the you hell, Disney buy Plus? It. it is a Disney movie. So what the fuck? Where is this movie? This also led us to discover that you can't watch The Watcher in the Woods on Disney Plus. Where, like, why aren't they releasing this content? It's Halloween, for God's sake. Instead, yeah. we're getting the fifth fucking Halloween Town movie. Mm-hmm. Where is Something Wicked This Way Comes and Watcher in the Woods yeah. and all these other fantastic Disney movies that people really want to see. I know I do. So you got to find this movie in other ways. Maybe illicit ways, or maybe you have a copy on disc somewhere or VHS or something. Mm -hmm. But if you want to watch it, that's how you're going to have to do it because Disney gives you no other options. Which is absurd. It is. Should people watch Something Wicked This Way Comes if they can find a copy? Hell yes! Absolutely! Oh my god, I love this movie. It's very good. It's so good. The uh, the kid actors are not great, but, but they're it's kid so actors good from the eighties. I mean, come on! It it is. Uh, we just talked. If you listen to last week's episode, you really do got to stick around to the end of the episode because we talk a little bit 
about what we're going to watch the next week. And we had a conversation about how Kelsey doesn't really like Ray Bradbury. And I get it. But there are things of his that she does like. Yes. For instance, the Halloween tree. Yes. And all summer for a day. Uh I I realize that's what the short story is called that I have taught before and do like. There's even a short story I'm thinking of teaching this month to my ninth graders. Uh I don't know if they're going to like it, but it's kind of a cool story. It's called When Softly the Rain Comes or something. When the Soft Rain Comes. It's a really cool story about nuclear war, but I don't know if they're going to like it. Yeah, we think, you know, Ray Bradbury's kind of a, he's a Luddite and a curmudgeon. He doesn't like much, and he hates change. And he hates technology. (laughs) He hates technology, yes. And he hates television, which I find funny because he still wants to make movies out of his Uh books. Everything's better when it's what it was like when he was a kid. Yeah. And, I mean, that's Mm -hmm. why this movie, you know, takes place... In the past, in some vague past. Right. Like, okay, every single one of his stories has the exact same theme, practically. Except for this one is a little bit different, but we've also seen this in a million other things. Uh But my point is, despite all of that, we do recognize that he is just an incredible fucking writer. Yes, he is a talented writer. And the script here, including the narration, which... For me, narration has an uphill battle to fight. I tend not to like narration by default. You need to justify it, right? And I think just through his writing alone, the narration is justified. Yes, but here's the thing. The narrator understood what he was reading. Yes. Whereas the kids, I think, had some trouble with some of the dialogue. I don't think they knew why they were saying what they were saying, Uh which is all on the (laughs) fucking director. Sure. And, of course, famously, when they released the first version to test audiences, they didn't get much of a reaction, including an animated sequence at the very beginning we'll talk about, which came out of the final version, and what ended up being replaced by the tarantula scene, which you'll know when we talk about it later, which included a giant animatronic hand that people thought looked hokey. I would love to see it. I know, I really want to see it. (laughs) But... Disney went ahead and did all these reshoots with a different director and didn't tell fucking anybody, including director Jack Clayton or writer Ray Bradbury. They just did it. And so both of them were like, well, this isn't what we wanted to make. And I totally get why they're upset. Also, though, sounds like the movie wasn't that great in the form that they made. Sounds like audience didn't. Audiences didn't register with it. But then again, apparently they didn't register with it the way it came out. Yeah. (laughs) Or it didn't register with them, rather. Yeah. I don't know. But Disney, 80s Disney took a lot of risks. They really did, yeah. And not a lot of them panned out. But now people love them. Yes. So, I don't know. It's a bummer that audiences weren't quite ready for that yet. And it's a bummer that they can't give it a second chance Today, where you watch everything in some sort of digital format, and you can't do that with this movie. Mm -hmm. At least not legally. Mm -hmm. It's like they're asking you to pirate the movie. Mm -hmm. It would be, like, what rights do they have to get for this, I guess, right? They got to convince Bradbury, and maybe he doesn't want it. 
I think so. He's maybe dead. that's it. Well, his estate. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's it. Maybe maybe they don't because they can't. But that would be a shame on anyone's part if they would be not down with exposing this to more people. I just think it's interesting that it seems to be very obscure movies that not a lot of people have heard of. And these two in particular that I'm talking about, this and The Watcher in the Woods, happen to be creepy. But you're right, they are both based on books. And you're right, maybe it's something to do with the rights. Yeah, that's that's my best guess. Because otherwise, you have this digitally somewhere. Just fucking put it up there. But um, I imagine there are other rights considerations that they have to get through. Because you can watch... There's so much Return shit. Return to Oz on yeah. Disney, Disney Plus. Plus so. Yeah, that's that's one of these sort of like 80s really weird movies, <laughs> you know, that Disney made. Anyway, we do recommend that you watch this one if you can get your hands on it. You can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 1983's Something Wicked This Way Comes. An electric storm to clean your streets and wash away your trouble. For every heart, there exists a wish. You ever play the numbers, Mr. Holloway? Hey, never take risks. For every soul, there burns a desire. Always was. Smells to me like we're gonna have visitors. But never whisper your dreams. Or someone might be listening. <laughs> and for every wish, there will be a price. Ray Bradbury's fantasy tale of light and darkness is getting closer. Something wicked this way comes. All right, Kelsey, get us started. How does something wicked this way comes begin? With a badass incoming train? Yes, this is where the smoke from the train was going to animate into the shape of tents and poles and things like that. Such a cool idea. But in 1983, do you think they could have pulled it off? Apparently they tried and failed. I'm just shocked that it, you know, couldn't have been animated. Well, that's what it was. It was hand animated to do that. I'm surprised it didn't look good. Well, you have to go from real ass smoke to animated smoke. Probably looked a little bit hokey. Maybe. I feel like they did animated smoke and real smoke and Mary Poppins and it looked fine. But whatever. It would have been a cool shot. The music is foreboding, however, slightly Darth Vader-esque. Uh-huh. But it is good. That is James Horner. He has done, this is like one of his earlier works, but he's done so much shit, uh, including a lot of the Star Trek movies. He did Avatar. He did Titanic. Jesus. Aliens, which is probably one of the only movies he's done that we've had on the show. Wow. But, you know, he he did James Cameron movies, right? He's mm-hmm. also done a few uh, Steven Spielberg movies. Uh, he did the orchestration for Captain EO, An American Tale, Land Before Time, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, awesome. The Rocketeer, which has 
<laughs> like, you know, that sort of epic heroic music. Um, yeah, he's done a lot of shit. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's quality music. Very good. And then, yes, we get the narration with the beautiful fall colors of the of the East Coast, which I want to do someday. I don't care if it makes me a 60-year-old white person. Like, I <laughs> really want to do that. And, yeah, it's very Norman Rockwell and... October brought long nights and dark promises, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> I wrote down, God, this movie is just so incredibly well-written. Yeah. First of all, it was October, a rare month for boys, full of cold winds, long nights, dark promises. Days get short, the shadows lengthen. The wind mourns in such a way you want to run forever through the fields. Because up ahead, 10,000 pumpkins lie waiting to be cut. He's a talented writer. He has, he has a way with words specifically. Now, I'm not talking about the plot. I'm just talking like the dialogue and the narration is just beautiful. Mm-hmm. We get to meet the seller of lightning rods, Tom Fury. That's Royal Dano who we previously saw in The Dark Half. That was the last movie he ever did, was The Dark Half. But he's also been in Ghoulies 2 and Killer Clowns from Outer Space, which we haven't seen yet, but House 2, the second story, he was Gramps. That's where we really know him from. Oh, God. Ugh. <laughs> God, I hated that movie. Sorry. So, yes, he's here to sell lightning rods, and a storm is coming. And I can't help but feel that there is a much richer backstory to this character that we do not get. We don't get much of one, yeah. Like, he he knows something. Like, he's a prophet. And yet, he seems like he's just a swindler that manipulates children yeah, into no, giving their money. Yeah, no, I don't think it's money. that he's a swindler. It's that he's desperate, and he tries to sell his wares, and he's good with the word, but... You know, he's poor and he doesn't have anything. And he that's why when he sells the lightning rod to Nightshade, Jim Nightshade, he takes whatever the kid has because he's like, even though that probably wouldn't be enough to afford one of those lightning rods, he still took it anyway because he felt bad. Like, he's a kind man. Oh, that's what you thought it was happening there? Yes. No, I thought it because he said, he, he asked him how much and he said, how much you got? I yes. thought he was seeing how much he had and was just going to take whatever it was and that he was charging him way more than he should have been. No, I think ultimately that's why we we looked and we saw and it's a single crumpled up bill in like one coin. If we were supposed to get the impression that it was too much money, it wouldn't have been just a single bill in one coin. I don't know about that. I he had one of those really sweet voices like that's uh, that's enough. I mean, because the point is, is that he's supposed to be a sympathetic character. Like, we're going to get a moment later that you need to have sympathy for this That's guy. why I was very confused. That's So that's why I'm saying I think your interpretation might be not well, what they, they intended. They did not make that clear. Totally fine. I'm just saying I don't think that that's what they intended. But my point is, it's, it's it almost feels like this is a character that, you know, it's very famous, the idea that the poor town crazy is actually telling the truth. You know, that's a that's a common trope. But also that there's, like, value, that this man has value and a history that if anyone bothered to get to know him or ask about, he might have tons and tons of wisdom. Obviously, this super powerful demon character tries to torture it out of him later, 
uh, but nobody does, you know, because they just dismiss him as the town kook, you know. Like, there's value to people even though you might not see it. Well, it is not explained well, and later we're going to see him be tortured, and it's odd because... Mr. Dark or whatever his name is. Yeah, Mr. Dark. Acts as if he knows this information and Tom kind of speaks in riddles and it's hard to know if he really does have this information or if he's just the, like you said, the village idiot. It's difficult to tell. I it, The impression that I got with Mr. Dark being so knowledgeable about everything and so powerful that even if Tom Fury has lost his mind. He does have that knowledge. Maybe he doesn't even know he has that knowledge, but he has it. Yeah, because he does say he knows secrets, but like I said, he speaks in riddles. Uh-huh. And that's why Mr. Dark gets frustrated and ends up electrocuting him. This movie's pretty fucked, right, guys? <laughs> but you just don't know enough about this character yeah. to understand what is going on. If there was going to be a spin-off of this movie. I wouldn't care about the Dark Carnival. I would care about Tom Fury and his youth. Well, I'd be more interested in the Dark Carnival if there was more to it than simply vaguely say yes to us and we'll take your soul. And then you won't even get to enjoy any of the benefits. Like, it's just... Well, he's not the devil, per se. I think he's, like, a devil in a metaphorical sense. But I don't think he's Satan because he doesn't make deals with people. He tricks people into allowing him to steal their souls. Yes, which is pretty much exactly what happens in Coraline. Yes. So when Chris first said that he wanted to do these two movies together, I was like, I do not see a connection. And he didn't either. And then as we were just like, well, the fact that they're both kids horror movies is all I need. As we were talking about it, I was like, it kind of seems like they do have a lot in common. And then after watching them, I'm like, oh, my God. Well, they have like a core premise in common. Yes. Yes. But it's even stronger than like Wishmaster, I would say. Sure. Because as you, well, as the original Wishmaster tried to establish, you had to choose. Yes. And I like that. I don't think that every sort of like monkey's paw scenario needs to be like that. And we've complained about movies that were just like this before, where they vaguely it's make a choice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But like, there is an irony here still, but it's not about them being greedy so much as it is sadistic it's a sadistic way for mr dark to capture them to sort of like give them what they want and then turn it on them it's not like a tell me what you want and i'll give it to you but oh there's a twist it's not like that i would agree to that except for the way that he treats the father because he makes it full on a choice with him until because he he has the power to do so right and until he gives up and then is just willing to kill him yeah but it I got the impression that if he just killed him, he didn't get any benefit out of it. Yes, because he's just cruel. He wasn't trying to get Jason Robards, the father's soul. He wanted the kids. He just wanted information. He was torturing him. Mm. It's different. It's difficult to set the parameters on what Mr. Dark... Because the idea... Like what his powers are? Yeah, the idea is that he... Lives off of, like I said, their soul, right? That's Uh what you got the impression as well? Yeah. 
But then also they live off of suffering. Uh-huh. But if you don't let them make you suffer, then you're okay. Because, like, happiness drives them away. So it's just not super clear. Happiness doesn't drive them away. That's why at the end he says whoop and holler yeah, 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 yeah. it drives them away. No, no, no. To to wake up his friend, at that point, Dark's already been dealt with. Has nothing to it has zero impact on Dark and the Carnival whatsoever. The thing that drives them away is the purifying rain. So I looked up what happens in the book. I did not take the time to read it, but I looked up what happens in it, and from what I've read, the father literally staves off the woman who is taking his heart. Yeah, the Dust Witch. By, I don't think she's called the Dust Witch in the book, but she he laughs, and that's what makes her shy away. Uh-huh. So maybe I was conflating the two. So anyway, we are getting, like, way far into the end of this movie. But, yes, we have the town crazy, I guess, Tom Fury, played by Royal Dano. Any relation to Paul? No. Other people have asked that. <laughs> So anyway, we get to meet the the characters that are going to be manipulated and tricked by Mr. Dark. There is the barber who dreams of far-off women, who what will happen to him is he'll become a woman himself. So I guess the idea is that he longs for women's skin, so then he becomes uh-huh. a woman and gets woman's and, and skin, their, I their think. And scent, and he's just so obsessed with women that he becomes one himself. I don't yes. think you need to read too much into that. Then there is the guy who dreams of being a a football player, but he can't because he went to war and lost a leg and an arm. So he'll get his leg and his arm back, but then he'll become a kid. And I'm just like, well, yeah, but then he can grow up. So he can still become a football player. But he also doesn't seem to be able to- In fact, he gets a second time at life. Isn't that great? He doesn't seem to be able to talk. Oh, he can't talk anymore? I don't think he says a word when he's a kid. He doesn't, but that's because the only time we see him is when he's far away. Yeah, I don't know. Then there is the teacher who was once beautiful, and she will become beautiful again, but then she'll become blind, so she doesn't get to to see her beauty, I Uh guess. Yep. And she is mad at the two main kids, who are Jim and Will, for whispering. Her little whisperers. What a time to be alive. Uh, (laughs) If that was the problem that you had with children. Whispering was the issue. (laughs) And then there is Jim and Will, who are best friends. Will's father is the town librarian. Yes, and this is Jason Robards, who is a coward. And apparently it's like this big neighborhood scandal. Everyone knows that he's a coward because he has this heart condition. I don't know that he's a coward. I I think it's more that he just has regrets about his life. Oh, no, I 100% agree with you. But, like, because of his age and his heart condition, there's a lot that he can't do. And he's basically terrified to have an adventure because it might kill him. (laughs) But it seems that the whole town knows about this and everyone talks about this. And it's like... Everyone judges him. Well, it's a small uh town. They don't have a lot to do. Oh, what a cowardly man. Oh, poor, poor Holloway. What What a boring old man who can't have any adventure and won't, you know, people actually judge him for this. It's like, this is a man with a heart condition. Leave him alone. Yeah, I... (laughs) But it also does kind of seem that only the kids really judge him for it. People talk about it. Talk about, you know, his friends, his buddies. It's a big moment between him and Dark later. Yeah. Well, 
Jim is jealous because he doesn't have a dad at all, so he just makes up lies about his dad. And Will calls him out of out on it super hardcore. Yeah. Jim? Like, oh, come on, Will. <laughs> Let it go. I think it's the acting because uh-huh. he didn't know how to bring it up naturally. He uh-huh. didn't know how to bring it up. Like, But then again, I don't know that a kid would know how to bring right. it up naturally. I, I would think that Will is like, what? You're lying. What are you? Or you know how sometimes as a kid you might do that? Like you might not catch on that you should be helping your friend like not reveal something like, well, you no, ever say something out say loud it. and then your friend hits you? He doesn't say it in front of his dad. He says it when they're alone. I don't know. I don't think it's just his dad. There's something else going on. I think Jim says the lies in front of the dad. And then when they leave, that's when Will's like, you're just straight up lying. No, but I mean, he called, He says Jim. And then Jim, like, shoots him a look or hits him or something oh. to shut him up. I don't know. Look. Who are you fooling? Your father doesn't ever write. That's better than a father who's afraid of... <laughs> He's not afraid of anything. All right, I'll tell my father that. Jim, you want to say something, Will Holloway? Everybody starts to hear music or smell things on the air or get a uh-huh. feeling about something. And most people are excited. Really, the only people that are not are Will and his dad. And Will is curious but scared. And the dad's just plain frightened. But for good reason. He has, like, the knowledge, the prior knowledge that this is bad, and I guess it's because it's a hereditary thing. Yeah, there's something off about this. He will find out that this is something that happened to his father. Yes. Later on in the movie. And that's the part that I was thinking is very similar to it. Oh, when they're doing the research When they're looking the at library. the library. Uh, yeah, looking at the old things that the father had written down. Uh-huh, yeah. And seeing that it's happened in the past, uh-huh. and it's, you know, it's a carnival, which, you know, it's the It's the autumn carnival, I think is what it's called. Mm-hmm. Or the fall carnival or something like that. October 1891. We have had no good fortunes since there arrived here the autumn carnival. So it felt a little, a little like it. And then you find out that I think Stephen King is a fan of this book, or a fan of Bradbury. That makes sense. Yeah. Nothing's original anymore, and that's okay. (laughs) Everybody gets inspiration from something. Nobody writes a book without having read a book. But so they start to find out about the carnival from all these papers that are flying around, and the dad will even see Mr. Dark throwing them around, and he doesn't like it. No, he crumples up the flyer and burns it. Will's going to see the paper in the fireplace. And he'll know what it is because he's already seen Uh it. And then he'll ask his dad about it and his dad will change the subject. Mm -hmm. He won't lie to him. He won't say, no, I haven't seen anything, I don't think. I think he just changes the subject immediately. And Will knows that his dad's uncomfortable with something. We forgot to mention the cigar shop owner who desperately wants money. He wants to get lucky. He feels unlucky, unlucky in finance, unlucky in love. All he wants is to get lucky. Mm-hmm. What's the name of this carnival, by the way? Do you remember? It's on the flyer. Dark's Pandemonium? Mr. Dark's Pandemonium Carnival. With a magic mirror maze. Yeah, which is a big hit. Yeah. And I'm very impressed with how they handled that. Why? I wasn't looking like incredibly close, but like you do not see the cameras anywhere. And yes, there is some like composite shots 
you know, where they make a fake background and, you know, they, they layer the cells over one another or whatever. So it's not like real, but there are shots that are very real and they hide the camera really, really well. Uh, I, I'm not positive that they didn't, you know, fix things up in, in the years later when it was released on DVD or something like that, maybe. But it's still, it's very impressive, especially when you later see a movie like John Wick, which has a mirror action scene. And there's a lot that they did to prevent the camera from being seen. But I think they also went in and digitally altered it. So pretty cool. You know, there's always this fascination with magic mirror mazes or just mirror mazes in general. It's in It Part uh, 2. It is. <laughs> It's also in the Stranger th- Stranger Things, but the problem is, is that have you, have you? I've never been. I guess I've never been in a real mirror maze. I've only been in the shitty ones at the carnival that aren't mazes. Yeah, uh-huh. I would love to go through a real one. I would love to it's go through to be a like real disorienting corn and... maze or something. A uh-huh. real maze maze. I would like to do that. Not not the quote unquote like mazes. The walkthrough mazes. Yeah. yeah uh huh. Mm-hmm. You've never done one of those. No. Maybe I've never done a, a kid. cornfield maze, but I've definitely done, like, I think, like, at the Ren Fair or something like that, I've gone through, you know, a constructed maze. The walls are too high to see above. And, you know, you just keep your right arm on the wall and just, if you want to take all the fun out of it. I don't want to take the fun out of it. Just put your right arm or your left arm, either one, touch it to the wall and never let go. Always keep that wall on your right side, and you will eventually get out. You heard it here first, folks. That's how you solve a maze. (laughs) But so, the boys that night are going to hear it at like 3 a.m., and they're so excited that Jim says, hell yes, when he asks them if they're uh going to go out in the middle of the night to Uh find it. And... It's really sad and tragic that we didn't get to see the cool shot of the carnival coming together because we get a mystified Will saying, but how could they? And we didn't get to see it. Yeah. uh huh. How could it be set up so quickly? Exactly. That's what you're left thinking. Uh Like they just did it really fast and it's Uh not nearly as cool as it would have been if it had been what it was supposed to be. Yeah, but apparently it looked like shit. So... But it might have had a charm to it. You never know. But they are being watched by a woman with tarantulas. Yes, this is Pam Greer. Yes, it is. Which is great. She, I don't, does does she, I know she talks to the barber. And I think she talks to Jason Robards, Will's dad. But she doesn't talk talk very much. A couple times, yeah, not much. But she is just this beautiful... Like, she has this, like, gypsy look to her. Yes. and But she's always wearing this ring, and that's how you'll identify her. Mm-hmm. But she's very, very pretty. Uh, oh, yeah. And it, you can't believe it when you find out it's Pam Greer. <laughs> well, I mean, you look at her and you see it's Pam Greer. <laughs> but so, Will gets home and he encounters his dad, and his dad's not even mad that he was out, because he's like, I get it, young boys. Uh-huh. But he's like, it's three o'clock, the soul's midnight. This is when old people die, which makes Will extremely uncomfortable. (laughs) He's like, oh, I guess it's just when people die a lot. And he looks at Will and he's like, "Uh, I mean, old people, old people die. (laughs) And then he realizes, oh, wait a minute, to my son and to a lot of people, I'm an old person. I don't mean me either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he tries to have an honest conversation. And Halloway is... (sighs) He's tormented. 
by his own, like you say, regrets, his own what he considers to be cowardice. But really, it's just practicality in the face of a disease he has. Well, but also he regrets the idea that when his son almost drowned as a kid, he was unable to save his son because he didn't know how to swim. So Jim's dad, (laughs) who inexplicably took off on his own kid, Uh saved this one. Like, it just, like, Bradbury, what is the story there? Here's the question. Did his dad go off with this carnival at some point? And that's why Dark focuses on Nightshade. I don't think that's the case, but it's an interesting, because I'm pretty sure Dark mentions his father at some point. But wouldn't that be interesting, too? Yeah, there's but there's a lot of just backstory that we don't get. Uh-huh. But the point is, is that Halloway feels a lot of shame and regret over his own cowardice, and his inability to be what he feels is a good father to young Will. The fact that he is an older gentleman, it means he can't be as good a father in his own eyes. And Will's like, I I love you, Dad. Like, you, I don't know what you're talking about. I, You know, but he st- it doesn't mean he doesn't carry that on his shoulders all the time. Mm-hmm. And so this movie is going to give him an opportunity to put himself in harm's way in order to save his son. The next day at the carnival. Everyone goes to the carnival. Well, of course, when you live in a small town. (laughs) Hey, I go to the fucking carnival every goddamn year. (laughs) I imagine that for them, it's an even bigger deal. uh But when they go, they're very dismayed to find out that it's just an ordinary carnival. Yeah. They see that the football player wannabe, the bar owner, the war hero wins a free ticket to the mirror maze. And when he goes up to it, he sees himself with a leg and an arm, and that suits him just fine. And I guess, like I said, this is him vaguely signing a contract. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. There is no real concept of a contract in this. There is no agreement. Nobody is is signing their own death warrant, really. It's, these are just predators. And they prey on fear, and they prey on souls. That's it. There is no, oh, you're making a contract with the devil, and it's going to bite you in the ass. That's not what's happening here. So he goes in, because he's excited about what he sees. On the back end, the teacher comes out, and they're like, Miss Foley, are you okay? And she seems out of sorts. She's totally dazed and confused. But a little blissful. Yes, it's so beautiful and bright in there. Uh So the barber goes to see Pam Greer, who is basically in like a fortune teller mode right now. Yes. And she tells him that he only needs to call to the women and they will be there. Uh So he is going to go see the harem ladies at the carnival. Yes. This is when the cigar shop owner will win a thousand dollars and a cigar, and a free trip on the Ferris wheel. And when he gets there, there's Pam Greer again. Yes. But she's dressed differently, but still has that same ring on. Yes. And so he's going to sit on the Ferris wheel with her, and he's very excited. And then when she gets off, he's not there anymore. Yeah, uh uh-huh. And by the way, the guy who keeps giving out all this free shit is the same person as well. The redhead, Mr. Mr. Cougar. Cougar, I think his name is. His name is Mr. Cougar, yeah. 
When the barber goes to see the exotic dancers, Jim will look through a hole, which again is leading to the whole idea that he wants to Jim be wants older. Jim wants to be older, yeah. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, the barber's like surrounded by the women. Well, they and pull naked. him up out of the audience. And then they all surround him as they're doing their dance, their exotic dance. But before Jim can see what happens, one of the little people in the carnival hits the side of the tent with his cane. And he says that the content's too old for you and like laughs him off. They see that the carousel is out of order and they go in anyway. They're caught Uh, By Mr. Cougar and Mr. Dark. Yes, and Mr. Dark has, like, a moving tattoo, which does not seem to frighten the kids at all. So, okay, so it's weird. You can see Jonathan Price, who plays Mr. Dark, just so fucking good. He's incredible. He is always evil. And I love him. So, so good. So evil in Game but, of Thrones. But you can see he is, yeah. You can see him. He pulls up his sleeve and he still wears his glove and he's tensing his muscle. And it's that thing that people say about tattoos when there are tattoos that like hypnotize or enchant people that when you flex your muscle, oh, it looks like the naked lady's dancing or whatever. So you can tell he's like flexing his arm, but the tattoo is actually, it's a special effect. You know, it's drawn on there, and it's like a kaleidoscope effect on his arm. And it's moving on his arm. Yeah, exactly. But the idea is, you could tell, I'm sure it says this in the book, if it happens in the book, that, oh, he was twitching his muscles, and it was as if the tattoo was moving. Oh, my God, is it really moving? But how do you put that in a movie? (laughs) So they just animated a tattoo on his arm. But they decide that something is up. So they go ahead and hide. To stay yeah. there till after dark to find out what happens yes. after dark. What do they see? They see Mr. Cougar riding on a carousel backwards to become younger. Yep. Mr. Dark puts him on and then turns on the carousel backwards. So obviously the carousel changes people's age. It's a really cool idea. It's a really creepy idea. And yeah. It's also I funny really like seeing... It. The big guy, Mr. Cougar, getting on a carousel and like his legs don't fit or anything, you know, and then he just gets younger and younger until he's this creepy fucking redheaded boy. Like he's I have that note down. I wrote down this kid is legitimately creepy, (laughs) especially what he does next, because they follow him when he runs off and he goes to Miss Foley's house. He is apparently Miss Foley's nephew. He's pretending to be her nephew. Yeah. And they try to warn her. Not really. Well, Will does, and they go in because they want to warn her. Will's about to say something in front of the kid when Jim stops him. Miss Foley, we came to warn you. Warn? Yes. He he won't be in school Monday. He's sick. Oh? Yeah. See ya. Will is supposed to be showing us that he's already understanding that... Jim is starting to be seduced by the carnival, yeah. but Will does not, he's a kid, and he doesn't do a great job of showing that in his performance, mm-hmm. and so the dialogue here feels very strange. It, it He's constantly talking to Jim about, like, don't ditch me, and he, you know, you touched the devil devil's hand, and you don't even care, Yeah, but, like, the kid seems very removed from the dialogue and doesn't understand why he's saying it. And it really hurts the performance. 
I will tell you, the order that we have of these kids here is probably good, because according to Sean Carson, who is Jim Nightshade, which is just such a cool fucking name. It's a very cool name. Especially when Mr. Dark is going to try to entice him with the Nightshade and Dark's Pandemonium Carnival or whatever. That's such a cool name. Mm -hmm. Or the Dark Nightshade Pandemonium Carnival or whatever. <laughs> it's so cool. Jim Nightshade. What a good, what a proper name for a carnival. Dark and Nightshade's Pandemonium Carnival. Anyway, Sean Carson was a blonde, and Vidal Peterson, who played Will, was a brunette. Are you serious? Yes, and they auditioned for each other's roles, and they gave them the alternate roles and dyed their hair. How funny. Yeah. That's really funny. Yeah. I like Jim. Jim Nightshade is great in his Jim role. is the better actor yeah, uh -huh. of the two, but even he sometimes struggles. But, but Will has this innocent wonder to him that you kind of, you can... I don't blame the kid. I blame the director yeah, for totally. not getting the ki kid to understand why he's saying what he's saying. Right. The reason directors don't like working with animals or kids is because, you know, they don't do what you want them to do. Because you can't just tell them, like a qualified adult actor, just do this. Mm-hmm. You need to be more, you're teaching this kid. You're mm -hmm. not just providing instructions. Mm -hmm. You have to teach them. Yes. And I think a lot of directors don't have the patience for that. Mm-hmm. But so when they leave their teacher's house, I guess she doesn't know that the kid left her house. So he comes out too. He stares them down. It's a great moment. Oh, yeah. But it doesn't really make sense. He picks up a rock. He throws it at the window, shattering it, and then books it. I mean that it doesn't make sense that like she's not like, where the fuck is my nephew? Uh, but yes, it's a great shot of the kid being very menacing and walking towards the kids. And unfortunately, the kids do not look scared at all. <laughs> They're definitely supposed to and <laughs> you don't get fear out of them. Uh -huh. But it's a great shot of this kid menacingly walking up to them, not saying a word, and then just randomly picking up a rock and throwing it at the window. It's a great way to get the kids in trouble. However, why she assumes it's Will and not Jim, I don't understand. Because Jim seems to be the bad boy of the two. Yeah, uh-huh. I think, I, I think she would assume it was Jim. But you know what? It kind of doesn't matter because this, this particular event... It's not for consequences. It tells you things. Yes. About relationships and who you should be worried about and makes you feel a certain way. The consequences of this action don't matter because something's going to happen to Miss Foley before anything – she can do anything. Mm-hmm. True. Now, this next scene is also, uh, like, I'm just like, I think there's supposed to be a backstory here that we just didn't get. What's that? Jim comes home and his mom is, like, with a dude and – I think we're supposed to get the impression that this happens a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that she forgets about her son. And it's just like, what yeah. the fuck is going on in this house? She's still, this is Diane Ladd. She still, like, wants to live her life. Her husband was, quote unquote, taken from her or left her at such a young age that she still, like, wants to be with a man, but still has the responsibility of being a mother. And I don't think she is that good of one. Yeah, but it's just like earlier when we first saw her, she was like in bed. And I was like, is she an invalid? And then clearly she's no, not. I just and think she's just supposed to be a bad mother. I guess. I wish that. 
Think about the expectations of a mother at that time, especially in this idyllic world that has been created for us, what a stay-at-home mom would be like. Mm-hmm. And it's not one that sleeps in and makes their kid take care of her. It is not one that forgets and doesn't realize when their kid is out all night. It is not one that lets a man come home and have their kid catch them. Mm -hmm. She is not a good mother in this context. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting conversation between Will and his dad again at night when he comes home. This is where he actually has that conversation with him, right? About yes. what happened in the river. Mm -hmm. But I love that the Will is just like, I wish I could make you happy. Yeah. Like, that's what I wish. It's I think like you would love that you're my dad and just be mm -hmm. happy with that. I think that Jason Robards, Charles Halloway, we just have been calling him Mr. Halloway. I think that he just has his own personal regrets and feels like he let his son down. And I don't think his son thinks that nope. at all. Nope. But that's not the point. The point is, is that Charles is fighting his own demons. Yes. And he says something about his own death or that it will happen someday. And Will goes, don't talk death. Someone will hear you. Yeah. And I, I think that that is such a creepy, interesting line. And I think that it just gets thrown away here. Yeah. I wish you could be happy. Just tell me I'll live forever. Then I'll be happy. Dad, don't talk death. Someone will hear you and... Dad. Guess I kept you up kind of late. Up you go. But in his interactions with his buddy, Jim, and now in his interactions with his father, I think what we're seeing is that Will has inherited some of this cowardice, quote-unquote. Yes, absolutely. And... Charles, the father, fucking hates that. Like, he likes his son. He loves his son. And he does want his son to be careful. But he doesn't want the things that he's ashamed of about himself to be rubbing off on his son. Yeah, why do you think he doesn't care that his kid goes out at night? Right. He's like, yeah, you were just having fun. That's good. I want you to have fun. Yeah. It's kind of like in the sandlot. Get dirty. Yes. But uh -huh. not too dirty. <laughs> It's true. It's what a mom wants. You uh -huh. want your kid to have a lot of fun, but you don't want them to do anything too stupid. Yeah. I was always more careful than I think my parents needed me to be. They would, I mean, we were latchkey kids, and I could go out and do anything during the day, especially during the summer, and they would never know. And, like, I would go out with a friend. We'd go riding bikes in creeks and do jumps and stuff like that, but I was always really tentative about like doing jumps and something because what if something happened and nobody knew where we were or anything like that i was probably a little bit like of a of a mother's dream when it comes to being cautious like the very next night i think will catches jim trying to get to the carnival without him because he wants to ride on the carousel and become older yeah so will catches him and they end up going together even though that's not what jim was planning but when they get there, they this is where they encounter the torture of Tom, Tom Fury. Fury. Yeah. And this is also where we get to see what has happened to all these adults of town who had these fearful needs, as the narration puts it. Yes. Which, needful things? Exactly. That's uh -huh. what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> so Tom Fury is set up in like this electric chair. And what is it? That Mr. Dark wants from him. 
He wants to know when the storm is coming because the storm washes them away. His words are... Lightning reveals our dark corners. Rain washes away our dust. Tell me when. Mm-hmm. So fucking cool. Yes. So cool. Mm-hmm. Except that, I mean, you come in October, so you can't last very long. Right. But the point <laughs> is, is, is it's as things are getting dark, things are dying. This is when they come. And it's like before the rains of the winter. So it's like they're there as long as the storm will allow them to be this purifying rain and lightning. And Tom Fury, who is the town kook who sells the lightning rods, he has the secret knowledge. But he just starts babbling, doesn't even really respond to Dark. He just starts babbling instead, either because he really is insane or because that's the only way he can prevent himself from revealing the secrets. We are not told that. But the kids freak out when they see this, and I, th- I think it might be Will who stands up and shouts something, right? Yes, when the ki- when he's being electrocuted, Will says, stop it. Yeah. And what you didn't mention is that before he electrocutes him, he tries oh, to get him- Oh, he shows to s- him a vision, right? Well, he tries to get him to say his, his secret by showing him his quote-unquote bride, and it is- Pam Greer, uh-huh. and he says, and I'm saying he says she's more beautiful than Helen of Troy and Pocahontas. Yeah, it's a very weird. Was an odd choice, right? Especially what we really know about Pocahontas, but what they knew about Pocahontas at the time, probably. Oh yes, she was this beautiful native woman or whatever, you know. I guess these famous historical beauties, because you know he's always talking talking about like epic things. But the reason but, that's yeah, important. Yeah, Pocahontas is weird. Yes. But the reason that's important is because when Will says, stop it, Pam Greer turns to them and she becomes a hideous creature. Yes. Like her, her beauty disappears. It's obviously not her natural state. She is, like I said, a hideous being. She's a dust witch. Yes. <laughs> and when the boys run away... They end up seeing Will's head getting chopped off from a... Guillotine? Guillotine! Uh-huh. It's a nuts little scene. <laughs> but because now they've been seen, Dark wants them. So that night, well, they both go to bed, right? And then something happens to where Will goes over to Jim's house. Because and- the green smoke. Oh, yeah, he so- he sees the green smoke. And so he he goes over there. Their roofs practically touch. So that's how they can climb across to each other. And... When he goes in and they're talking, all of a sudden, this is where Kelsey can't watch. (laughs) Because this fucking place is just flooded with tarantulas. Yes. So this is the dust witch trying to come and get them. Now, this is the scene that originally was Dark's giant hand coming in through the window. Which makes way more sense thematically. Yeah. But apparently because looked terrible. How are spiders going to carry them to him? Because what he says is, bring them back to me. Yes. So the fact that it's a hand makes sense. Yes. So this was also a reshoot, like I said. This is one of those scenes that were filmed later. And it's the most it's egregious. Very, very obvious. Famously, if you've seen this movie or know anything about it, you know that in this scene in particular, Will and Jim look 
so much fucking older than they do in the rest of the movie because they've caught them at a weird point in their lives. They're going to start growing a lot faster. And this gets filmed like a year later or maybe a year and a half or something. I don't know the exact dates. The change between seventh and eighth grade. It's very obvious. Even when in their screams and when they talk to each other. So like dialogue is kept to a minimum because of that. But they do say things and you're like, okay, (laughs) (laughs) you are so much older now. Yep. Uh, But yes, like. Hundreds of tarantulas all over the place, coming out of cracks in the ceiling, coming through the window, coming through the door. When Will tries to crawl into bed, he realizes they're crawling up under the covers. And when he throws the covers off, they're all under there. It is awful. And apparently these kids are really there with all of these tarantulas and all the scenes where they're in the same shot as them. When they smash yes. them, they're real. Oh, I don't know about this. I'm sure the smashed ones aren't real. But, oh, Jesus. but who knows? It was is 83. It might have been. <laughs> I mean, I don't care, but still. <laughs> yeah, nuts. you don't care because you hate them. But yes, I mean, like, you know, animal standards wise, you wouldn't want. Oh, my God. Yes. Did the, but, have you heard, like, are there any quotes the kids have said about working with all those spiders? Yes, apparently, um, because the spiders have all those hairs, they're a certain type of hair and they do irritate the skin. So because they're surrounded by all these spiders, apparently they got, like, skin rashes or something like that. Ah. But did they talk about, like, was it scary? I didn't read anything about that. I couldn't do it. I know you couldn't. I couldn't fucking do it. There's a lot I would do to be in a film. Yeah. But that is not one of the things I would do. I would do anything for love. But I won't do that. (laughs) No, I won't. If I was in a room full of tarantulas, she'd probably still freeze. I'm sorry. Yeah. That is the thing that she would not do for love. <laughs> oh, yeah. When 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 I was a kid and we would watch Indiana Jones and I would tell my dad I'd die. I couldn't go through uh-huh. that room. He would he would just be like, no. Temple you were, of Doom is what you're talking about, right? Yeah. He yeah. Would, he's like, if you were in that position, if they were coming after you, you would be able to run through that room. And I was just like. I wouldn't. No, they say they say you know fight or flight. It's actually fight, f- fight, flight, or freeze is really what it is. And I have the feeling that you'd be somewhere between freeze and flight because I know when something happens, like you're you are you lose control of your body basically, right? So that's the flight mechanism. <laughs> but you also can't do anything. And as soon as your limbs go everywhere and you tense up, then you freeze <laughs> and you just call out to me and you won't say what's wrong. This is like when we find a spider in the bathroom or something like that. <laughs> we have a horror movie podcast. <laughs> I think it would be a lot different if it was an actual entity or being. Yeah. Something that I could I was say I could hurt. I guess I could hurt a spider. But the problem is that spiders can jump. Yeah. Spiders jumping is creepy. Like when we played Animal Crossing like all of the year, the first year it came out. And whenever there was a tarantula or a scorpion, but tarantulas especially, because tarantulas rear up on their back legs. Uh, ah. <laughs> hate it. <laughs> hate it. Yes. But anyway, we don't exactly know what happens. It's a dream. It just stops and they wake up in their own beds. Yeah, they just wake up in their own beds. Because it's a reshoot. It's a really bad. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. That's a problem with the reshoot is it kind of ruins the continuity there a little bit. 
Yeah. It's a great scene, but I don't think it was worth it, unfortunately. But they do realize that, fuck, he's after us. So they run away. They get out of there. The next day, I guess so. Because they they wake up like the next morning and they're fine. Yeah. And at first, Jim sees the parade and he's all excited. And Will's like, "Uh, no, it's not a parade. It is a search for us. Yes. So they end up hiding in like the sewers mm-hmm. uh, under and the street. And they're like walking around with kid-sized coffins like it's nothing. Yeah, it's this weird sort of like macabre thing. And that's the thing. It's called a Mr. Dark's Pandemonium Circus. I think it is intentionally creepy even for the layperson. It's not like they don't know that it's not spooky. It's supposed to be spooky, but you think it's all in good fun. Hmm. The kids know, no, no, it's legitimately dangerous Mm. and so they're hiding from everyone and there's a thing involving a dog and he gives them a biscuit that just happens to have fallen down in the sewers i guess Mm -hmm. Uh, but really the important part is that charles holloway the dad jason robards who has gone looking for his son finds him in the sewer Mm -hmm. and hides them from mr dark and believes what they say to him because he already knows there's something fishy going on first he goes into the bar and notices that well, he notices nobody's here. The, the The barbershop is closed. The cigar guy is gone. The bar is closed. So a couple of Robard's friends, Charles Holloway's friends, open up the bar and start talking about this. Like, where is everyone? What's going on? And that's when Mr. Dark will come in and be like, hey, looking for two children or whatever. And Holloway's like, uh, I gotta go. And he leaves. And Dark catches up to him at the cigar shop, and he tries to act natural. And Mr. Dark is like, I'm looking for these guys. And he's got them tattooed on his hands. On his hands, on his palms. Even in the best of times, I would be like, the fuck? No, he is is ratcheting up. It's supposed to be like, oh, magic. You know what I mean? (laughs) But he is ratcheting up his intimidation. Because right here in this scene, everything, the mask is going to fall. And he's going to be very direct with him. But he can't do anything because they're all in public, right? And he even reveals the fact that he already knew their names, that which means I know that you're his father. Where's your son? And Halloway plays it cool and gets away from him and doesn't reveal the fact that he found his son down there right before Dark caught up with him at the cigar stand. This is where he also sees the guy who was who had the crutches. Yeah, as a little kid who throws him the ball and he throws it back to him. Like he did earlier in the film. But the kid's not excited to see him because it's almost like there's nothing behind the eyes. But he still knows there's a connection to Halloway. And so he feels compelled to interact with him. Almost like he's warning him or giving him knowledge. But you can't tell it from looking at his eyes. There's no recognition there. Get out. Get out. A little bit. Yes. Yes. Get out. Very much so. So Halloway knows that something's fucked here. Something's happening to his friends and these evil people are out for his kids. So what he told them is, meet me at the library. We're going to look something up. And so he does. He meets them at the library later and they look up his father's old journal entries. Much like Mike. Yes. Much like Mike in It. Who never gets that in the movies. Yeah. Never gets it. Oh, there's this great exchange before the library, but while they're still at the cigar shop, where they have like this play on words thing initially when they're trying to keep up pleasantries, Halloway and Mr. Dark. And Halloway says, I have the honor, sir. And Dark responds and have had for many years, I do believe. Like it's a little dig at his age because he knows he's insecure about that. And then he keeps, 
that he keeps talking about how, oh, you only live through other men's dreams. What a waste of a life that is. And Halloway's like, well, I have an education. I've learned from other people's dreams. He tries to insult him a little bit. And he says, come visit me, sir, if you wish to improve your education. And Mr. Dark responds, I will, and I may improve yours. Which is like, they have a fun little exchange here. So then Dark, at the end of this exchange, where like Dark is digging into his hand so much He's trying to keep his composure together and not explode on this man in public that he starts to bleed from the hand and it drips down and it lands on like Will or Jim's face or something. And it's really fucked. (laughs) But then there's this great moment when Dark is like, "Okay, fine, you're not going to give me anything. I am off to continue this charade of a parade. (laughs) And he does this like motion with his cane and then starts the parade back up again, and they're playing like a funeral dirge. Yeah, I heard that. And the whole time, as they walk away, Dark is just staring at Halloway. And it's really fucking creepy. Price does such a good job as Mr. Dark. It's so great. So they go to the library, they look up the journal. Yes, in 1891, no good fortune has come to us since the carnival came. They seem to destroy people with their greatest wishes. The the lame girl went to the fortune teller and she was able to run and then she ran mad. Uh Uh-huh. And that's when Mr. Dark shows up and the kids hide up in the stacks, which is cool. Yes, so they hear the door open, the kids hide in the stacks, and then we just see Holloway's face waiting, listening, or something and he senses something and we're just looking at Halloway and then he says by the pricking of my thumb something wicked this way comes and then it's revealed that Mr. Dark has been standing in the back of this shot the entire time it's been held there now granted he wasn't there when the kids were there we don't know when he showed up but it's like he came out of nowhere Yes. And they fight a little bit with verse, which is, you know, an author's dream. Oh, God, the dialogue here is so good. Then rang the bells both loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong will fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. It's a thousand years to Christmas, Mr. Howard. Wrong. It's here, in this library tonight, and can't be spoiled. Did Will and Jim bring it with them on the soles of their shoes? Then we shall have to scrape them. There's this really poetic dialogue here, and they're the undertones of what they're really talking about when he says, scraping the souls of these children. Mm -hmm. Like, huh? Literally, he's talking about the soles of their feet for the figurative Christmas time that they brought in with them. But... Metaphorically, he's talking about, you know, stealing their souls. Metaphorically speaking. Metaphorically speaking. (laughs) And Holloway calls him out. I know who you are. You are the autumn people. Where do you come from? The dust. Where do you go to? The grave. And Dark says, yes. And continues to describe who they are in more poetic terminology. We are hungry. We feed on your nightmares. We eat your pain. Yes. It's such a good exchange that I'm just going to put it here. I know who you are. You are the autumn people. Where do you come from? The dust. Where do you go to? The grave. Yes. 
We are the hungry ones. Your torments call us like dogs in the night. And we do feed. And feed well. You stuff yourselves on other people's nightmares. And butter our plain bread with delicious pain. So, you do understand a little. You are known in this town. My father knew you. Your father? The preacher? That half-man? You'd have done goodness. Tasteless fare. Funerals. Bad marriages. Lost loves. Lonely beds. That is our diet. We suck that misery and find it sweet. We search for more, always. We can smell young boys ulcerating to be men a thousand miles off. And hear a middle-aged fool like you groaning with midnight despairs from halfway around the world. Your books cannot hurt me, old man. Yes, old. Because your heart is old. It's like, uh, we can smell young boys ulcerating to be men a thousand miles off. And hear a middle-aged fool like yourself groaning with midnight despairs from halfway around the world. This fucking scene is so good, and then it gets better. Dark says, I know you know where the kids are. I need you to tell me. He takes the journal, and he starts to offer Halloway something. Hey, would you like to be 30 again? I could make you 30 again and have all these opportunities. And he's like, eh, out of time. And he tears a page out of the journal and he says 35, you know, 36, 37. And he starts counting up and tearing pages out of this journal. And it's obviously physically affecting Halloway, despite the fact that it's just a promise to make him younger. It does seem to be physically hurting him as well. And the pages glow every time he does that. But again, like the metaphor is not super clear because as you say... It's, it's he's, he's offering him this yes. stuff, but then as he's ripping it out, it's hurting him, which doesn't make a lot of sense unless it's just feeding off of his desire to be that age and the pain yeah. that it's causing him to not be that way. I would that's, say that's the pain they're feeding off I would of. say that's probably what's happening. But again, you need to remember these aren't contract monkey's paws like you get in other things like the first Wishmaster, but not the second. You know what I mean? So... I just like it when parameters are clearly yeah, totally. defined. Yes. Uh, and he's hurting him so much before he just decides to leave him there in pain on the floor. And he says to him. Because Will shouts out, don't listen. Yes. So, oh, they're here. I'm going to go look for them. He says to Charles. You fool. Damn you. A taste of death. Uh, uh, so you will know it when it comes again. Soon. Oh, it's chills. Just chills. And then unfortunately he says it again. He says it a fucking again when they leave later. And give him a brief taste of death so that he may recognize it when it comes again. And it's almost like they wanted to make sure the line got in there and whoever edited it and then came again later and re-edited it. Didn't like, realize. Didn't he's in realize. There twice. Yes, and it feels like a mistake, and it is. It grates on me every time I see it it's because the first one is so fucking choice, and then oh, he did it again. Oh, well, that's not. Oh, <laughs> it's just like a real big bummer. Mm-hmm. Such a good line, and then when he's calling out to Will and Jim, he just casually drops. We don't see it. Nobody ever talks about it. That 
he drove his mom insane. Later on, he'll find out when Will calls out for his mom that, oh, that's not who I drove insane. Oh, Jim, it must have been your mom. And like, it's a really cool kind of moment. But he just casually drops that as he's looking for them. And they try to stay hidden, but he does ultimately find them. He asks, are you under A for, you know, or B for, you know, whatever. A for adventure, B for boys. That's not how the Dewey Decimal System works. J for Jim, N for Nightshade. Yeah, he says all these different things, but he finds them. Yes. This is where he repeats the taste of death line. I wrote down the first time was perfect. The second is jarring and obvious. The dust witch comes for Jason Robards here. She takes away the kids' voices, and then they seem to be, like, under a spell. Yes. And, yes, she goes to hurt the father. And how does he fend her off in the movie? I don't remember. Because in the book, I think he fends her off by laughing at her. Yeah, but I think here she just, like, incapacitates him. Mm. And then this is when Dark says again that second line. When he's like, I got the kids, I got what I'm here for, and I want to torment you. So you know what to look for later when death comes for you. He ends up getting away. They leave together. Dark, the Dust Witch, and the two kids all leave together, just leaving Robards by himself. He recuperates and gets the courage to chase after them. Yes. And when he gets there, he encounters Jim's mom. She's going to show up because she thinks... The father is coming Jim's back? father is going to meet her there. It's so weird. He tells her the man who's coming for you is not your husband, which is a good line, but it just doesn't make sense because we never see that. Earlier, he had said that he had made them go her go mad. I guess that was just a lie to torment oh, yeah. the kids. Totally a lie, yeah. Okay. Uh, that's what I think. Yeah. And, and, and they could see through it when Jim sees his mom, and then he's like, oh, I mean, it was Jim's mom. You know, but he still manages to make that creepy. He goes into the the mirror uh, maze, like, immediately, and, again, they do such a good job of hiding the camera, because this is the first time we see it inside. Again, also assuming they didn't clean it up years later. (laughs) But, I mean, I can't imagine they did, because nobody fucking cares about this movie, apparently. Yeah, apparently not. What happens here in this mirror maze? They try to make him, like, drown in his regret and despair. They make him relive the moment where he couldn't save his son. But, of course, Will shouting, I love you, his love for his father, is what breaks the spell. Somebody stabs the Dust Witch with a lightning rod. (laughs) Yes, because um, Fury comes back in. He comes charging in, having broken free of that chair. Oh. Because Dark and the Dust Witch are focusing on this scenario. He's able to get free, and he puts a lightning rod into her, and lightning strikes it, and she dies. And then, yeah, I wrote down, happiness makes them run away. So, okay. Mr. Dark takes Jim and promises him to make him his partner and will age him up. And Jim is totally enraptured. He's under a spell, most likely, but it is what he's looking for. And Will is like, no, you can't. You stop. You know, whatever. Don't ditch me. Yeah. And so when Dark takes Jim and puts him on the carousel, Charles Holloway, the dad, shows up and chases after this thing that's moving and pulls Jim off of this carousel. But he's non-responsive. And Will starts to cry because his friend is non-responsive. And Charles has to, like, give this motivating speech to his son. Like, no, laugh, be happy, jump around, throw your arms about, shout, hooray, or whatever. Whoop and holler. Whoop and holler, yes, whoop and holler. 
that's because they feed on your sadness. They feed on your misery. They feed on your despair. And so that's where their magic is. And so if you want to save your friend, you need to not give in to despair. And so that's what that's about. It's not how they really actually fight against these. Mm. So, yes, Jim does wake up and Will gets really fucking happy. Meanwhile, because Dark was knocked out on this carousel that's moving forward in time, he just starts to age. And first they do it with makeup. And then there's a puppet taking his place. And this fucking skeleton looks so cool. (laughs) It is so good. I love the different aging versions of Dark. At first, it's just Jonathan Price with makeup, and it's a little obvious, but, like, it gets gruesome, and then all of a sudden, he gets, like, tossed off of it, and it's just bones in a suit. <laughs> it's just so fucking cool. We went to a haunted hayride where they had a carousel that went backwards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a shame the music didn't play backwards, I don't think. And then the rain comes. So the whole point is, is that Dark was so preoccupied with all this stuff and wasn't able to accomplish it and wasn't able to get out of Fury when the rain was going to come. He's been desperate this whole time to finish his task that now he's dead and the rain's going to come and wash away their carnival. And that's why all the other people that are there start freaking out because of the rain. I wrote down, he mentioned the lightning and the rain, but the wind seems to be the most destructive force here. Because it's what they use to show all the tents being knocked down and blown away and sort of forces them out of town. Mm. And everything's just cleared up in the morning light when the rain fades away. The kids and Charles race to the barber's pole. And I don't know if you noticed, but when they get there and touch it because it's their task, the light turns on. Because it had turned off last time, the night before. Mm. When they touch it, the like I think it was might have been dark that touched it, and the the light went away. Um, might have been the dust witch. Somebody does it, but yeah, when they all touch it because they get there when they're racing and they're having fun, having a jolly old time, the light turns on, and yeah, so they all go home, and everything's happy go lucky, and we get narration about you know what this meant to Will because the narrator is Will, just older apparently. That's the end of the movie. I really like the movie a lot. So do I. I understand how jarring it might be. Why Disney kind of took its name off of advertising for the movie. I get it. They would do that a lot back then. I mean, hell, they did it with Nightmare Before Christmas. And then when it was really popular, they're like, we made that. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yes. So they could theoretically do the same thing with this. How fucking cool would it be to have Mr. Dark's Pandemonium Carnival like in one of the parks? Oh my gosh. How cool would that be? Yeah. They could re- like they should. They should find a way to make this happen even if it's a rights issue. And even though it did change a lot from the book. Cuz they sort of Disneyfied it, but it's also terrifying. <laughs> it's a weird sort of thing. Bradbury though, as curmudgeonly as he is, described it as not a great film, no, but a decently nice one. Because he wrote it, most Which is, of it. But, but they changed shit on him. So you could see how he would be like, uh, no, that's not my baby. Mm-hmm. Usually, especially folks like Bradbury would be like, no, I disown it. Like, he, he feels like a Alan Moore type, you know? I don't have any say in what they did to adapt my work, and I don't care. I will never watch it. I hate it. You know, like, that's very Alan Moore. Mm-hmm. Bradbury strikes me as that type. So somebody to have seen it, so somebody like this to have seen it 
seeing how they changed from his original vision, how it changed so much from the themes of the book, and still say, it's a decently nice movie. Seems like, wow, that's high praise. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But what do you think it has on Rotten Tomatoes? I do know that it was highly regarded by critics. So I'm going to guess it's pretty high. I will guess 87. 61. What? It might be highly regarded by critics now. (laughs) Maybe that's what it is. But there are 31 reviews and 61% of them are positive. The rest are negative. Here's what the consensus is. True terror and typical Disney wholesomeness clash uncomfortably in Something Wicked This Way Comes. I disagree. Yeah. I wholeheartedly disagree. Like, imagine those Disney wholesome movies that you might have gotten in the 70s and the 80s, and further back, of course, but just for this era, right? Early 80s in this case. And then it's really fucking dark at the same time. Think about another movie that came out around the same time, Black Cauldron, which is another film that they try to disown, even though it's like a mainline Disney yeah, animated movie's film. Yeah, kind of boring. <laughs> but it's dark as shit and has one of the coolest villains in Disney history. So and one of the more m- annoying side characters. Yes, but in spite of that, they make you fucking cry over yes, him. Yes, Like, it's, ah, <laughs> I really hate that they disown that movie. And I really hate that apparently they disown this one, too. Apparently. Yeah, 61%. Underrated, of course. Yes. What would you give it? I am going to give it an 84. Good. I was like, this is at least an 80. I was going to give it an 85, I think. Like, yeah, I get it. It's not alien, but it's still... The kids acting is just... It's can be hard to take sometimes. Yeah. And there's just certain things that are just not made clear. And you're just like, could have given me just a line of dialogue there, but no. Yeah. <laughs> if they put maybe a little bit more into it and yeah. recognize that, like, allow the director and the writer to be involved in the reshoots. And like, okay, well, this isn't working. Write something else. Film something else. And then maybe the story would have been a little bit more cohesive. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have been edited into oblivion and reshot into oblivion like apparently it was. Mm-hmm. So it's a bummer to imagine that it could have been even better. Yeah. But it's still just one of my favorite like live action Disney movies has a from gr- this era. Has a great cover too. It's so good. It's such a cool cover. I love the boys running. Uh-huh. And Mr. Dark. Just Mr. Dark right in the middle of it. It's very, it's very cool. So good. Love this movie. I it's one of those that I am perfectly happy to watch every Halloween. And I don't really like I think as much as I want them to make a, a like redo it to get the better effects and all that and clarify you know clean up the story or whatever the problem is is that they would make it today and i just don't want them to do that it's the same with it leave it in the 50s and the 80s leave this in what is this supposed to be the 40s this is that like the 40s or something maybe even earlier than that i don't know something like leave it there i it it has a time it has a time and a place and if you touch that time and place it gets ruined yeah So I think you're right. I would love to see what they could do with this movie today, but I would hate to see what they would make. 
I think that's kids the on their problem. goddamn cell phones and yeah, shit. Uh-huh. Like, no, I don't want that. No, yeah, and it would be you know how they do these movies with starring kids now. Uh, yeah, it's a bummer. This is this is what we're gonna get, and I think that's fine. I really, really like it, but it's uh, it's a little bit of a bummer thinking about what it could have been. But still, what we got is something that I thoroughly enjoy. Yes. The writing, I think that's that's I am a sucker for great writing, even if it's not a great plot, even if, you know, the effects are cheesy or whatever. If 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 you could write like Ray Bradbury does. Yeah, I could watch it again. Mm hmm. It's just so fun just to listen to the people talk. Mm-hmm. It, You know what it feels like? It feels like that style of writing that was repopularized in like 2000 serial TV and like Mad Men and like stuff like that. That sort of like slightly obtuse. Nobody's really saying specifically what they mean, but they're using poetic dialogue to convey some sort of subtext. And this was in the 80s and earlier than that for the book. So... Yeah, big, big fan of this movie. All right, moving on to our next movie, Coraline from 2009, written and directed by Henry Selleck, based on the book by Neil Gaiman, starring Dakota Fanning, Terry Hatcher, John Hodgman, Keith David, and Ian McShane. Henry Selleck is, of course, the guy who doesn't get enough credit for Nightmare Before Christmas, for dealing with Tim Burton's fucking bullshit, (laughs) <laughs> as well as James and the Giant Peach and Monkey Bone. <laughs> uh, Neil Gaiman has said, at least around the time that the movie came out, that it was his favorite of all of his adaptations. Which doesn't mean much, because he basically had Neverwhere for the BBC, I think it originally re- released on. I have that on DVD here. Mirror Mask, Stardust. Like, there wasn't a lot that, you know, he had made uh, before this. After this... Uh, his version of the Eternals, you know, Eternals is the new Marvel movie coming out in this year, next year, something like that. He did a run on Eternals a while back, which I have all the individual issues of. Lucifer, the TV show, is based off of his version of Lucifer from Sandman. Uh, but it's a spinoff comic written by Mike Carey. Of course, there's American Gods. Uh, there was... How to Talk to Girls at Parties, which was based off a short story of his, uh, and Good Omens also, of course. Uh, also some other Batman and other comics-related things, like they ad- adapted his stories. Like I think Black and White, they adapted from his story. So maybe he doesn't feel that way anymore, but originally that was the case, and I think that's very true. I think you could potentially still make arguments for that, but American Gods is pretty good. I think there is a lot of really good stuff now in his uh-huh. repertoire. I think at this point, I totally get why he would say Coraline yeah. is his favorite. Because, sorry, but I wasn't a fan of Stardust. and I liked the book. I read the book, and then I watched the movie, and I was like, eh. And Mirror Mask is just okay. I think there are moments of brilliance. But there's other parts that are pretty weak. Mirror Mask was really exciting for me because it was a new live-action Jim Henson uh, Studios movie. And so I was very, very excited about the fact that I was going to get like, oh, it's the Labyrinth Studio making a Neil Gaiman movie. Oh, my God, it's going to be great. And, and, and... It was directed by Dave McKean, who made just the most incredible artwork for the covers of Sandman. Just just 
insane. And so, like, oh, man, all these things together. And, I mean, yeah, I like it. It's beautiful, I think. It has this really great style. But I don't really remember it at all. I haven't seen it in 10 years, probably. Maybe more. Uh, So, I don't know. But real big fans of Neil Gaiman over here. (laughs) Um, As you probably already know, he's one of my favorite writers. One of our listeners sent us a lot of, oh my god, just such incredible, like, hardbound and some signed, like, limited edition copies of some Neil Gaiman stuff, which was great. So, Peter, once again, thank you so, so much. Yes. But Gaiman has a way of making the fantastic mundane and the mundane fantastic, I think. And you get that here, I feel. What is Coraline about? A young girl is tempted to give up her ordinary life for an extraordinary one that comes with a cost. Oh, good. Nice. It is not available on any subscription service, but you can rent or buy it on most of the major services. You can rent it for three bucks or buy it for nine to ten. Should people watch Coraline? Yes, I think so. But I also recommend reading the book because I read the book way before I saw the movie. And I I think there is a lot to like here, but I think that there are parts of the book that are missing that you need to read. Okay. There's new stuff added in. Like YV is not a character in the in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I yeah, absolutely you should watch this. This is another awesome success from Henry Selick. He doesn't make a lot of movies. Like I said, he made Monkey Bone, which was not too popular. I really enjoyed it. I know, I know, but it's not like you know people saw Monkey Bone and it was like maybe it'll have a resurgence because of the Brendan Fraser love that's everywhere right now. Maybe. Uh, who knows. <laughs> Of course, James and the Giant Peach, Nightmare Before Christmas. Enjoy, yeah. I know you don't like James and the Giant Peach, but I, I think it's so much fun. I love the novel, and I don't know what they were thinking (laughs) when they created that movie. Uh, That that is an extreme example of book love. I dressed up as the spider for the book. Oh my god! Fair because I just I loved her character so much. And man, that must have taken a lot. It did. For you to dress up as a spider. <laughs> it did. And my mom fucking was like, are you serious? Every time you saw one of your legs in your periphery, you'd freak out. Yeah, no. My mom was like, you had to pick the character that has eight legs. Are you fucking kidding oh, me? Oh, it was more work for her. Yeah, it was more work for her to do. And I was like, because she was so very cool in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's cool in the movie, too. <laughs> But, yes, just another great stop-motion movie. We've watched a few of those already. This one comes from Laika, who also did Paranorman, which we've covered on the show. Um, which was great. Yes, which was also great. Uh, the Box Trolls, which I seem to remember surprisingly liking. Never saw it. I, I think I remember being like, this is going to be stupid. But then I watched <laughs> it, and I'm like, that was actually kind of fun. Kubo and the Two Strings. I thought it was beautiful animation, not the most interesting story. It also surpassed this movie as the longest, like, model-based, puppet-based stop-motion movie uh, ever made. Um, And it is beautiful. Yeah, by, like, one minute, I think. This movie is an hour and 40 minutes. Then 
Kubo and the Two Strings was an hour and 42. I Love Dogs is is right in the middle now, that Wes Anderson one. Never seen it. Yeah, neither have I. Isle of Dogs. Yeah, but it's supposed to sound like I Love Dogs. Oh. Yeah. So an hour and 41 minutes. These are pretty long run times for a stop motion animated movie, but it's, it's still just fantastic. It's gorgeous and it's legitimately fucking creepy. So the book's creepier. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes. Totally watch this movie. You can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 2009's Coraline. Coraline Jones always dreamed of finding a better world, but never imagined it would be in her own home. We've been waiting for you, Coraline. A place so perfect. I love your garden! It can't be real. (laughs) You probably think this world is a dream come true, but you're wrong. You're in terrible danger. From the director of The Nightmare Before Christmas. She's got this whole world where everything's better, but it's all a trap. How dare you disobey your mother? You aren't my mother. Coraline, rated PG. All right, Kelsey, get us started. How does Coraline begin? We get to see a doll being sewn together. Specifically, a doll being broken down and then reconstituted to look like what we will come to recognize as Coraline. Yes. We meet Coraline, a young girl who has just moved to a new apartment building. And she is exploring her surroundings when she is frightened by... A cat and YB, because YB has like a fog, like a, a mask. He has like a mask on that he wears. It's like a welding mask, but he has different magnifications on it. So when he switches it, he can zoom in. Yes, and it scares Coraline, which she's a very proud young girl. So that wounds her pride. So she immediately does not like YB. And that will carry on through most of this movie. She's really mean to YB. Yes. I think I heard someone calling you Wyborn. What? Uh, I didn't hear anything. Oh, I definitely heard someone. Why were you born? Because she doesn't want to admit that she likes him. Because she doesn't Uh want to admit that she likes anything at the new place. Totally. And you know what? He is a little bit annoying. Oh, totally. But she picks on him. She bullies him, basically. Well, he also makes fun of her. You know, he makes fun of what she's holding. And she's like, it's a dousing rod. And he's like, it doesn't matter Uh what it is. It's poison oak. Oh, he's socially inept. Yes. Totally. And that annoys her. He keeps calling her Caroline. Which other people do as well, and that really annoys her, so she's taking a little bit of that out on her on him. That is straight out of the book. It is a frustrating thing for her that no one knows to call her Coraline. The lore is, is that apparently, I don't know if this is true or not, but apparently Neil Gaiman came up with the name Coraline first. He started with typing out Caroline, messed it up typed out Coraline and he's like, oh, that's somebody's name. It is. It's not an unusual name. Coraline is a name that exists. But he's like, oh, I need to make a character about Coraline and made this book out of it. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. But so he already knows the land and he's like, you know, you're standing on the well that you're looking for. So she jumps off of that. And he explains to her that his grandma owns the Pink Palace, which is the apartment complex that she just moved into. It's just a home. The bulk of the home is their new apartment. There's an attic apartment where one gentleman lives, and then there's a basement apartment where two ladies live. Yes. And he tells her that ordinarily his grandma doesn't allow little kids to be to stay in the Pink Palace. 
Yeah. But he doesn't explain why. There's no explanation as to why she's allowed. Why Coraline's allowed? Yeah. So I don't know that there is really an answer. There's a lot of people online that are theorizing what the answer might be. And if it was in the book, I think people would just say that. There are a couple of theories. One of them is that she finds the doll. Like, because that doll needs to be, we'll find out later, reconstituted to look like whoever it is that the Beldam, as we'll find out it's called, wants to take. And the grandmother finds the doll and holds on to it, knowing that the Beldam won't be able to actually spy on and take whoever it is, then starts allowing kids to move in again. That's one theory. The other theory, and this is kind of a fucked up theory, especially when you meet the grandmother at the end of the movie, is that, well, YB's getting to the taken age. If another kid moves in, YB will be less likely to be taken. Especially if she knows that that doll has already been changed to somebody else. Allow that kid to be taken so YB is safe. But that also wouldn't hold up to the fact that she's so upset when YB ends up taking the doll. Wouldn't these circumstances mean that she wants Coraline to have this doll? If that was the case, if that theory was right? Hmm. I can't find it either. I don't know. But I had thought it had something to do with money, that she needed the money. But yeah, I guess that would make sense. I don't know. It would be a simple answer. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those are the best. Yeah, so he finds the doll in his grandmother's trunk, which he doesn't think is odd, and he gives it to her. Yeah, he's like, oh, hey, this looks like you. I figure you might be interested in this. And he gives it to her as a gift. I think it's also because he's kind of just interested in making friends with her and impressing her. Maybe. She pretends not to like it, even though she carries it around with her everywhere. Yeah. And she starts to bug her parents, and her parents are really busy. So her parents are gardeners, and they write books about gardening, and they're under some kind of deadline. So they're very busy. They're making some new catalog. Mm -hmm. Mom is Mel, played by Terry Hatcher of... See, now I immediately think of... The Adventures of Lois and Clark, where she plays Lois Lane. But of course, Desperate Housewives fame. And Charlie, the father, played by John Hodgman, who is a fantastic comedian and author, but who most people know as the PC from those old Mac PC commercials. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) But so... They keep trying to brush her off, and eventually the father gives her the a silly, like, you know, go and count all the num- all the things that are blue, all the windows and doors of the house. Yeah. Go out and count all the doors and windows and write that down. On- list everything that's blue. Just let me work. Which gets her to start exploring the house. While she's looking around, she finds some bugs, which is gross, and some gross water, and she presses a button that she's not supposed to, which makes her father lose all his work. Yeah. And then when she goes to bother her mother, she tells her to go and unpack. So she starts to take out her snow globes, which will become important later. And because she's counting doors and windows, she finds a little door. And she starts to really bother her mom. And her mom's like, okay, let's make a deal. If I find the key for this and I open this door for you, you leave me alone. She goes, okay, fine. So she does. She's really excited. And the door leads to... A brick wall. It's all bricked up. 
And when she leaves, Coraline tells her, you didn't lock it, which will become very important. Yeah. Uh-huh. That evening, she will waken to mice. Yeah, there's a really cool effect, which if you wait till the end of the credits, they show you without all the digital removal of all the wires and bars and things like that holding these in place. It still plays out sort of in animation time, but you see how they like made that happen where these like mice unfurl from like a, a rolled up paper and they have all these long tails and then they turn into effectively real mice start hopping around the house. It is cool. Yes. The mm -hmm. effects are so impressive. They do some incredible stuff like the this door is going to become a portal to the other world and that portal how it just like stretches out like one of those um one of those tubes that dogs have to run through <laughs> in you know when dogs run the little tracks. Yes, the and effects are really cool and the colors are beautiful. Yeah. And so she follows these mice to her other house where she meets her other mother. And everything is better here. Her other mother makes amazing meals. And her dad, her real dad, likes to make silly songs about her. Oh, my twitchy witchy girl, I think you are so nice. I give you bowls of porridge and I give you bowls of Ooh. ice cream. But in this version, he makes really cool songs about her. Yeah, the song that we get here is I think it's just called The Other Dad Song, and it's sort of a remnant of They Might Be Giants' impact on this. Like, you can hear it. If you know anything about They Might Be Giants, you can hear John Linnell's voice. Making up a song about Coraline. She's a peach, she's a doll, she's a pal of mine. She's as cute as a button in the eyes of everyone who ever laid their eyes on Coraline. When she comes around exploring mom and I will never ever make it boring our eyes will be on Coraline. He is definitely singing that it is not John Hodgman. Apparently they did several songs for this and it was going to be much more musical, mm -hmm. but they couldn't like come to an agreement on like the tone they were supposed to strike and so they ended up not including any of the songs except for just this one, I think. And apparently after the fact, subsequently, like, everyone's fine with each other. They just realize, ah, it was a conflict that we just couldn't align properly. But now they have all these songs and they, they've been talking for the past over 10 years now about, like, releasing them on other albums. And I think they've done that once or twice, but that's it. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Have to listen to those. But she really likes it, but it also seems very strange. Like, for example... She had wanted to go outside and play, but it had been raining all day, so her mother had said no. But in this world, the other mother says, why don't we go play hide-and-seek outside? And she goes, what about the mud? And the mom's like, who cares? It'll be so much fun. And that's when Coraline's like, you're supposed to be the adult here. Yeah. It's one thing for the mom to make an amazing meal, but it's another for the mom to encourage her to want to go out and get right. dirty. I mean, Coraline sort of stops and realizes, like, yeah, I know that my mom is, like, the enemy of me doing fun things. But, like, I know she's like that for a reason. <laughs> so it's a little bit suspicious that you're not. Yes. But still, she lets her have fun. She's There's a cool line here where... Coraline says, I didn't know I had another mother. I didn't know I had another mother. Of course you do. Everyone does. 
which is interesting. <laughs> That's not true. No, it's not true at all. But it's interesting. Yes. But so the next day she wakes up and she's back in her bed. Uh-huh. And she's just like, all right, I guess it was a dream, even though in her supposed dream, they got rid of the poison oak and the poison oak is still gone. Yeah, so... There's a process to this. At night, she goes through the door, goes to the other world, falls asleep after having a fantastic day. She only ever goes there during the night, I should say, Mm -hmm. right? By which I mean, it doesn't matter if it's daytime in the real world. It's always night in the other world. Then she goes to bed at the end of her time there. They tuck her in and they're very sweet parents. And when she wakes up, she wakes up in the real world. And this is the regular back and forth occurrence of how she spends her time there. Until things start to come to a head. Yes. She meets Bobinski. Yes. Bobinski, who is played by Ian McShane, who's certainly well known from Deadwood. You want a blowjob while I talk to you? No. I wasn't offering it personally. Probably more so now publicly from Pirates of the Caribbean. But Kelsey probably knows him best as Mr. Wednesday from American Gods. Odin. Yeah. That's Bobinski? Yes. How He's just funny. doing a Russian accent. Very clever, using this mix-up to sneak my home and peek at Mushkas. How funny. He's also wearing a medal that they gave out for people who served in the Chernobyl cleanup. Like you can see the way it looks. It has like a little water drop thing, <laughs> and there's writing around the side. And for whatever reason, that, lo- that one medal he's wearing is like that. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) I saw some people explaining that maybe that's why he's that weird color. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. That's why he talks to mice. (laughs) But he really can speak to mice. Yes, he really can. So the mice know secrets. These are not the mice that come to her at night. No. These are different mice. Mm -hmm. And Bobinski talks about things that the mice tell him. For instance, I think they're the ones to correct him because he also calls her Caroline. Yes. The mice correct him that it's they actually Coraline. They call you Coraline. Oh, yeah, that's it. Not Caroline at all. <laughs> it's just really cute. So obviously things that Bobinski doesn't know that yeah. the mice do, and he legitimately does talk to them. And they tell her, do not follow the mice through the door. Yes. And for some reason, this does not register with Coraline. She's like, ah, this guy's crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Like, she kind of understands, and then she's just like, fuck it. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Which I guess is kind of true about kids, to be honest. Uh Uh-huh. Then she goes to meet the sis- Are they sisters? Or are they just friends? They're just friends. They would do burlesque shows together a long time ago. This is Spink and Forcible. Played by Don French and Jennifer Saunders. These are famous British actresses. They had their own series, French and Saunders. Jennifer Saunders is also from Abfab. She's probably most famous for being part of uh, Absolutely Fabulous. And originally, they recorded the opposing roles. <laughs> and then Henry Selleck had them go back and re-record because he didn't think it worked that way. And I can totally get it. I was trying to imagine the other voice coming out of the other body. And I'm like, no, no, it doesn't work. Well, they are a lot of fun. Yes. They're old burlesque performances who are now just old ladies. Who have a bunch of Scotty dogs. Yes. Including their dead Scotty dogs that they stuff. stuff. (laughs) The one that they make 
<laughs> they're making like a little angel's gown and wings for it because that's what they put their stuffed dogs in. There's yeah. there's an older Scotty dog <laughs> that I think it's Spink is is making the outfit while it's still alive. Yes. Like, isn't that a little morbid? And it's like, well, his time is coming. <laughs> yeah. It's so He's sad. He's got like cataracts in his eyes, <laughs> graying hair. Oh, it totally survives the movie so and bad. feels even better by the end of it, though. So if you're worried about that, he's doing fine. I want a Scotty Dog so bad. I know you do. I wish I could give you one. If, if you have an inside track on Scotty Dogs, please let us know. Scotty Dogs or Corkies or dachshunds if anybody has uh, if anybody has those puppies uh, around here in southern california contact us because we really want one so one of them ends up reading her tea leaves and when they see the hand uh-huh it's they try very, to like interpret it in different ways it's very cute yes but it's very obviously uh the hand that was making the doll at the beginning of the film yes it's this like metallic well, in this, it's just black. Yeah. But, I mean, the one we saw in the beginning, we didn't describe. Right. But she tells her, you are in terrible danger. But she ends up leaving, and she again runs into YB and the cat. And she sees that the cat doesn't like to get its feet wet, so it st- stays on YB when there's fog out. Mm-hmm. And she calls it a wuss puss, and that will come up again <laughs> later. YB ends up explaining that his grandma's sister was quote unquote stolen when when they were children, which is why they don't normally let kids stay in the yeah, pink palace. Uh-huh. But of course, Coraline, who of course, you know, she's got that pride about her, has to pretend like she knows everything mm-hmm. and decides to follow the mice again that evening. Yeah. When she gets to the other mother, she says, I bet you're hungry as a pumpkin. And I'm like, what? She has a thing for pumpkin. Like, okay, so. Things are going to devolve here in this other world. In the original world, the real world, when Coraline is unpacking, she, like, pulls seeds out. Mm-hmm. One of them is, like, pumpkin seeds. Mm. The other dad, the other father, is going to transform into a pumpkin at one point. Yes. So there's this theme of, like, the things that grow here. I guess. That's a good point. Yes. She tells her, why don't you go out and see your father in the garden? She's like, my father doesn't have time to garden. She goes, your other father does. Mm -hmm. So she goes out there and it's this beautiful, gorgeous, magical place. And he ends up taking her up in the airship and sees that it's in the it's in the design of her face. Yeah, all the different flowers and everything. Snapdragons, which really snap and they tickle her. He says at one point, everything's right in this world, kiddo. When she comes back inside, her mother suggests for her to go and hang out with YB. And she's like, oh, no, there's another YB. And she goes, oh, don't worry. I fixed him for you. I figured you'd like him better if he didn't talk so much. And she doesn't know why, but he can't talk. Uh Uh-huh. And as they're walking to see the mouse show, she asks him, it didn't hurt, did it? And they never find out because yeah. she doesn't say anything uh-huh and she gets distracted with popcorn and cotton candy yeah they and- go upstairs to babinski's place and there's really a mouse circus yes that's going on here and that's what he's supposed to be doing in real life and the fact that he can talk to his mice makes me think that he really is on the verge of doing this yeah <laughs> 
And it's a lot of fun. It's it's very, very cool. Yeah. And then she goes to sleep that night, just like she did before, wakes up in real life. That day, they have to go uniform shopping. Oh, yeah. And it's really funny. When they get into town, the father has to go and talk to their publisher. And there's, like, a sign for, like, Shakespeare in the Park or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> And when he walks in, these Shakespearean actors, like, jump up and start saying verse, and he gets scared. And it's so funny. But it's Random, just like, yeah. what does this have to do with it? But it's really funny. Talking about things, what does it have to do with it? The, um, the mom, I mean, we get the impression that with them under the deadline to create their catalog that they're making, on top of that added pressure of the fact that she got into a car accident. Oh, yes. She has a neck brace on, mm-hmm. and you can see, I guess, there's some damage to the front of the car if you look at it in certain shots. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot talked about that. No, they do mention it at the very beginning, uh-huh. and I think it's implied that Coraline was being annoying and distracting. Oh, yeah? And she she still the mom, and she still was driving, but she got distracted mm-hmm. and ended up getting in a car accident. But there is this sense that this accident is almost like a catalyst for this, like, change in her parents, where they're not as joyful anymore, and they don't connect with her as much anymore. So, like, the accident, the deadline, the mom hates the dirt, the dad never has any time to do any gardening, and that's what they do. Like, they write about gardening Mm -hmm. and they can't even do it themselves it's kind of tragic Mm -hmm. you know the way something like that can really change a family yes and while they are uniform shopping Coraline asks for a particular set of gloves they're colorful because everything in the uniforms is all gray and she's like nobody will have these gloves like she wants Coraline wants to stand out a little bit have some personality But for whatever reason, her mother turns her down. Uh Uh-huh. Like, no, we're just buying you the uniform. So she's really mad, and she's fed up with her mom, and her mom tries to make it up to her to be like, hey, you know what, let's go grocery shopping. You can pick out the food. And she's just like, no, I don't want to. So then she goes off to the other mother. But when she goes to the other mother, all of a sudden her mom wants her to stay. Yes. And presents her with a gift. She opens that box, and it's a needle and thread and two button eyes. And then she goes on to explain, they don't have to be black. They can be any color you want. Mm-hmm. You know? Coraline is, of course, freaked out. And so she asks, you know, to think about it. So she goes to sleep. And the other mother locks the door. And then she goes to sleep expecting to wake up in her regular and bed. Yes. And she does not. Yes. She wakes right back up in the other mother's land. So she goes out exploring, and she thinks she finds the quote-unquote other cat. But the other cat tells her, No, I'm not the other anything. I'm me. Yeah, this is Keith David playing a no-named cat. The cat never gets a name. He's great. Yeah. He's so good. And she's just like, well, you have to be, or you wouldn't be able to talk. And he's like... How, what would I know? I'm just a wuss puss, right? Yes. Which is how we know that, no, this is the same cat. Who can travel between these places. And the other mother with her mice hates cats. And yes. so this cat just likes to fuck with her. Yes. 
Uh, this is when she goes to see the the two ladies. Okay. And she gets to watch them, and they do this fantastic performance. At first, they're old, and then they very they kind of creepily- Zip off their old zip bodies. out and into the young, beautiful bodies. Uh-huh. And then they include Coraline in the act, and she has a lot of fun. Uh-huh. And the audience is filled with Scotty dogs. Yes. Which is so fucking cute. The crew, <laughs> the audience, everybody is Scotty dogs. It is really cute. Really adorable. She encounters her other father when the other mother is asleep. Yeah. And he's playing the piano, but he's playing it all weird when earlier he played it all great to play the song. Yeah, so he has these sort of like mechanical hands that help him play. And in this instance, he's just very out of it, right? Like he's slow. He doesn't talk very much. She's like, what's going on? And he starts to like let things slip. Mm -hmm. And the mechanical hands are like covering his mouth and then saying, uh, uh, uh. But what we get out of this is that the world is created by the other mother. She controls everything. And when she's either not paying attention or she's resting, things sort of fall apart. Like her being able to control the other father. Yeah, he says, All will be swell soon as mother's refreshed. Her strength is our strength. Which really upsets the hands. Uh-huh. And he also says, because she's looking for YB, and he says, he pulled a long face. Her mother didn't like it. And that's when he gets, like, totally shut up. Yeah. So she tries to run away, and she walks away from the Pink Palace and then ends up back at the Pink Palace. Yeah, the whole world just sort of turns into white, and then she wraps back around the other side. Small world, she says. Mm-hmm. And that's when the other cat kills one of the mice. And she's like, what the fuck are you doing? And it turns into a rat. And he's like, it's an alarm. Everything works for the mother here. Yes. And that's when she tries to escape. And the mother throws her into a cell. Which I don't think is the best idea. Because then she was able to talk to the ghosts and find out all the yeah, information. So she's put, the cell is inside of a mirror. And when you go through the mirror, it's just a wall where the mirror was. And yeah, then she gets to meet these ghosts, which are the children she's taken in the past, including YB's great aunt, his grandma's sister. Yes. And they tell her everything. And I'm like, well, there goes ev- like all the information that Coraline yeah. needed. They also give her the name. I don't know if it's here or later. They're the ones who call her the Bell Dam. Yes, the Bell Dam. <laughs> And shush, for the bell down might be listening. You, you mean the other mother? And they explain that they willingly let her sew buttons on their eyes. Uh And I'm like, what? I think the idea is just that they're little kids. They love everything about this world and everything here has button eyes and everything's great. There's no danger. So they're like, yeah, I want to stay here. I'll do anything to stay here. I mean, I know that that was in the original book. uh I just don't remember. So these children also lost their eyes. And they were basically drained of all their life until they died. Yes, she ate up our lives. Uh Uh-huh. And so they're very, very unhappy. This is also where we learn that she uses the doll to both spy on the little children in the real world 
and to lure them to the other world. To find out all the reasons why they're unhappy. Yes. And they explain that if she can find their eyes, their souls can be freed. Yes. Before any of that matters, she ends up escaping back to the real world anyway. But what she discovers is that her parents are missing. Yes. And then when she looks in the mirror... Where the, where the mirror she was tossed into in the other world, when she looks into that mirror in the real world, she sees her parents, like, shivering in the cold on the other side of the mirror. I do love the conversation that she has with YB here, because she's trying to get YB to admit, like, where he really got the doll and all this information, and he's just like, you are crazy! It's, it's just a fun little Yeah, he exchange. doesn't believe her at all. He does say that his... Grandma is really pissed that he took the doll and yes, gave it to her. But she can't give it back. She doesn't have it anymore. Yeah, it's gone. She runs to the two ladies who live downstairs and explains that her parents will not be able to take them to the opera because the plan, yeah. they are missing. And they give her a little, like, triangle with a circle in the middle. Sort of like a Ouija board planchette. It's like a viewing medallion or something like that this is called an adder stone and there are a lot of different cultures that have used some sort of form of this thing there's druids the welsh the irish russians they all have some form of this adder stone in their mythology and it does different things depending on which culture you're looking at which they make out of old candy, like old hard candy, you know? That they were trying to get her to eat earlier. But yeah, and they fight over what it's good for. One says it's good for lost things. One says it's good for bad things. And the truth is, is that it's good for both. Uh-huh. But she ends up going back to get her parents. And the cat tells her, you know, why don't you ask her to play a game? She's got a thing yeah. for games. It's also really cool because the cat in the real world is still following her around but can't talk. Mm-hmm. And so as they're crawling through this tunnel, at one point, he just starts talking, mm-hmm. which is a great moment. It's confirmation, too, that, yes, they, they are, in fact, the same cat. Yes. So she convinces the Beldam to play the game and somehow convinces her to give her a clue as well. Why don't we play a game? I know you like them. Everybody likes games. Uh-huh. What kind of game would it be? An exploring game. A finding things game. And what is it you'd be finding, Coraline? My real parents. Too easy. And, and the eyes of the ghost children. Huh. What if you don't find them? If I lose, I'll stay here with you forever and let you love me. (sighs) And I'll let you sew buttons into my eyes. Hmm. And if you somehow win this game... Then you let me go. You let everyone go. My real father and mother, the dead children, everyone you've trapped here. (sighs) Deal. Not till you give me a clue. Oh, right. In each of three wonders I've made just for you, a ghost's eye is lost in plain sight. Get it? Eyes, sight. So she goes around this tiny little world looking. And where does she look first? In the garden. Yep. And she finds it pretty quickly because she uses the planchette, which she doesn't think to use until the Beldam tries to take it from her. It's like, oh, thank you for telling me that this is important and useful. She ends up finding the one in the garden pretty quickly. 
Then she goes to find one down where the ladies gave their performance, and she encounters these bat dogs. Just like the dogs in the real world had the angel wings, these now have bat wings. Yes, and the ladies come out of the taffy, and they come after her, and it's pretty cool. It's a really cool sequence, and she ends up using her flashlight to get the bat dogs to attack the taffy ladies. Uh So that's cool. And she finds the, the ghost eye. She goes upstairs. Oh, yeah. It's, it's actually place. really sad because Babinski is now just rats. and Just she's, rats in a suit. Yeah. yeah and uh-huh. she says to him, you're nothing but a copy. And he goes, not even that anymore. Yeah. It's really oh, sad. And it's very sad. Yeah. Creepy as shit. <laughs> but yeah, and she ends up getting it away from the, well, the cat gets it away from the rats. Yes. So she ends up having all three of the eyes, but the ghosts tell her, even if you win, she'll never let you go. So she decides to trick the Beldam into coughing up the key that she had earlier ate. By guessing that her parents are behind the door. Yes, so she gets her to open the door. Meanwhile, she goes to actually break the glass where her parents are. They're How in a she snow globe. In the, snow globe? the cat tells her. Oh... So all Coraline is looking for right now is just the potential to escape. She has to worry about her parents later. She needs that key. And that's how she's going to get the key. And while the mother is coughing up the key, that's when the cat says, psst, Coraline, or whatever, and points to her parents in, like, the Detroit Zoo snow globe, I think is what it is. because it's frozen inside. That's why earlier when she saw them inside a mirror, they were shivering and Mm -hmm. cold. Exactly. She ends up getting her parents out. She ends up throwing the cat at the Beldam, who ends up clawing out her button eyes. Yeah. So now she's blind. We haven't been talking, but like every scene, oh, the right. more Coraline's down there, the stronger the Beldam gets. And she becomes more and more insect like. Yes. And now the whole floor, all this hardwood floor, which goes around in like a hexagon pattern, just sort of drops out underneath her and turns into the components of a web. And now the Beldam is like this giant metal spider thing with the other mother's face. Yes. It's fucking terrifying and so cool. Yes, her slow transformation throughout the film is very well done. Uh Every time she gets a little bit bigger and a little bit more harsh lines, Uh it's it's well done. She starts to get the butt. Uh On her dress, and yeah. But yes, now she is this giant blind spider, and Coraline is caught on her web of, like, metal, and she has to climb up it, and it is a really cool scene. So cool the way they did that. It's so well animated. Yes, the animation, there's, there's no question it's great. And it's so fabulous when she gets to the door, the bell dam is screaming, I'll die without you. It's like, yeah, you will, and I don't care Uh that you will. Yeah. And she ends up saving her parents who don't notice the melting snow on their clothes as they tell her that they just got home. She gets out. The Beldam's hand, the one that was making the doll earlier, gets cut off in the door and chases her through the tunnel, which is all, you know, cobwebby and dirty now. It's not as fantastical and mystical as it was before. And... They end up getting out and closing the door and locking it with the hand now stuck in this pathway. And yes, her parents just come home. And like you say, get mad at her for breaking the snow globe. 
that's my favorite snow globe. <laughs> that night, her mom gives her a gift, puts it in bed with her when they tuck her in at night. And she opens it up and it's the colorful gloves from earlier, which yeah. is really fucking sweet. Mm-hmm. And everything seems to be happy, except the ghosts come again that night and thank her, but also tell her, you're in danger, girl. <laughs> you in danger, girl. Yes. Well, I'm glad it's finally over. It is over and done with for us. What about me? You're in terrible danger, girl. Very much ghost. Uh, ghost, yes. You in danger, girl. She'll keep coming for that key. Yeah, and what ends up happening is the hand makes it underneath the door and into the real world. And they, her and YB end up thwarting it. Yes, and dropping it down. With the key. With the key down into a well. the well. Yeah, so they, they smash it with the rock. They wrap that up in a sack. They tie that up with a string and tie the key to the string and drop all that down this old well. And then everything seems to be fine. Grandma Lovat. YB's grandma ends up coming and they're, 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 what they're doing is they are unveiling their garden. They're having a little garden party. Now that they got their catalog published, you know, they didn't have to do any additional work there. They could actually work out in the garden and the dad does that. Well, we didn't mention that the other dad has turned into a pumpkin at that point. Mm-hmm. And when she gets the one in the garden mm-hmm. that she finds with the Adderstone, He's like a pumpkin riding that machine and it's coming after her and it's kind of creepy. But yes, now her dad can build the garden and everything and the grandma comes over and she says to the grandma that she has something to tell her. It's like, what is she going to tell her? Do you think the grandma kind of knows a little bit and so won't be so terribly surprised when she's like, yeah, she was taken to another world and I just saved her? I think kind of. I think she pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the implication. And then the camera pans out. The garden is a face, again, just like the one in the other world was Coraline's face. Except this one isn't quite as detailed, because mm-hmm. it's real. Mm-hmm. And it looks a little bit like the Bell Dam. Oh, you think so? Yeah. Uh-huh. I didn't notice that. Yeah. Interesting. Or it could just be a more I thought it was realistic... Coraline, but a lot less defined. Exactly, because it's a real person, just, just a dad doing it for his daughter. Mm-hmm. You know, that's also possible. I'll go back when we do the edit. I'll, I'll look at it and I'll share it with you on Twitter at Pod Cemetery, and you guys can judge for yourselves. <laughs> and that's the end of Coraline. What do you think the movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? I know. Yeah, because depending on where we watch it, they really front the Rotten Tomatoes score. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is one of them. We watched it on uh, iTunes. So... What is it, Kelsey? It's a 90. It is a 90. With its vivid stop-motion animation combined with Neil Gaiman's imaginative story, Coraline is a film that's both visually stunning and wondrously entertaining. It even has a Metacritic, a Metacritic of 80, which is insane. Mm -hmm. It's very good. It's really fucking good. Here's the question for you, Kelsey. Do you think it's better than Paranorman? Because I can tell you what you gave Paranorman. I think Paranorman is more entertaining. You gave Paranorman an 83. I gave it an 89. It's Rotten Tomatoes was 89 at the time. I think Paranorman is more entertaining, but I think Coraline is more... Fulfilling, maybe? Whimsical and fun and uh interesting to look at. Fascinating. Yes. Sure. So I'm going to give it an 86. I... 
am really, really tempted to just agree and give this one a 90. I I really, really love it. I wish Coraline wasn't so irritating. Like, I feel like a lot of Neil Gaiman's characters, it's like, it's hard to like them. Like, yeah. they, they all have flaws, which I know makes them more realistic, but it also gets makes them grating. Like, she is an irritating character. She can be mean. Yeah. And I don't like that. I don't like that she can be mean to YB, even though I know there is redemption a kid, in the end, though. And I know that and she yes. feels bad about it. Yes. And I know that she, you it know, it makes she, it a little real. Yeah, it makes it more real. But and it's I harder to that. like her. Yeah. It's uh-huh. harder to like her. Do you think you would have liked her more if she was played by real life Dakota Fanning? No. Because I don't know, like, I couldn't find out a lot about this, but I saw reports that this was originally supposed to be live action and that Dakota Fanning was cast. And then they made the switch to stop motion and Henry Selleck asked her if she wanted to still do the voice. And she was very excited about that. I think it was way better as a. Oh, it has to be animated. Mm -hmm. It has to be. It's. Absolutely stunning. I don't know if that's a real story or if maybe Dakota Fanning as a child didn't know it was just going to be a voice acting gig and then found out after the fact. Who knows? But that's really interesting, I think. So that is 2009's Coraline, thus ending our wholesome Halloween episode or kids horror episode with 1983's Something Wicked This Way Comes and 2009's Coraline. It was a good week. It was a great week. Both movies are very good. So, so highly, good. I highly recommend them. And if it seems like we kind of rushed through Coraline, it's just like, I would just have to spend all this time describing it. The and visuals. you should just see it. Yes, you really should just watch it. The visuals are stunning. Uh, it has this dark, but also like black light kind of style to it. The contrasts are great. The colors are beautiful. The imagination that comes from what Neil Gaiman wrote and what Henry Selleck and his crew then turned real is incredible. Um, So big, big fan of this movie. What are we watching next week? Well, next week, I know you're going to be very excited. Folks. We're going to. Folks. <laughs> we're going to be watching Phantom of the Paradise. Fucking Finally. And Repo the Genetic Opera. We are doing a horror musical episode. I am so excited. He is very excited. And these have been recommended to us. Chickapedia recommended Phantom of the Paradise. Uh, and Jeffrey recommended Repo the Genetic Opera. I am. I can't tell you how excited I am to do Phantom of the Paradise. I have never seen it. It's nuts. It is nuts. It is. I mean, you guys have to know that probably, actually, Kelsey's favorite stage musical is Phantom of the Opera. Yes. And she has seen it so many fucking times, (laughs) including once with me. (laughs) And it's going to be interesting to see what she thinks about this one, because it's very 70s. It's very avant-garde. It's very weird. Okay. So I'm really interested to see what you have to say about that. Uh, but that's next week. It's Phantom of the Paradise and Repo the Genetic Opera. Which is a lot of fun. That's going to be our second movie with Paris Hilton in it. Yes, it is. <laughs> How about that? That's okay. <laughs> what were we just watching? We're, we're like, 
Oh, we were watching something that mentioned Buffy the Vampire Slayer and their the musical episode that they do in that. And then Giles shows up and I'm like, hey, hey that's the bad guy from Ted Lasso. Also, the Repo Man from Repo the Genetic Opera. Yes, I did not realize that. Yeah, you were never a really big Buffy fan, huh? No. Yeah, so you wouldn't have recognized him seeing him in Repo. Nope. Well, that's next week. So we really hope you guys look forward to that one. It, it might be for some of you out there that you have never heard of these. And I encourage you to listen to the episode anyway. Until then, you can always find us on our website, podcemetery.com, on Twitter, especially at podcemetery, and of course, subscribe to us in your podcatcher of choice. Don't forget to rate and review. A five-star written review is the biggest help you can give us there, but even bigger than that is sharing us with your friends, and even bigger than that is just plain listening in the GD first place. Thank you all very, very much. We love each and every one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? Sometimes a man can learn more from another man's dreams than he can from his own. To the sacred place This ain't a dream I can't escape Smolders and fangs that are picking up bones Spirits moaning among the tombstones Well, the next thing you know, old Jed's millionaires Kinfolk said, Jed, move away from there Said California is the place you ought to be So he loaded up his truck and moved to Beverly Hills, that is Swimming pools, movie stars, the Beverly Hillbillies. Okay. No, no. <laughs> I mean, I know what it is. <laughs> You're not blowing my mind over here. Let me tell you here. about a story. About, let me tell you all a story about a man named Jed. Poor mountaineer, barely kept his family fed. Then one day he was shooting up, shooting at some food. When up from the ground came a bubbling crude. Oil, that is. Black gold. Texas tea. And then what I said before. <laughs> that's the whole entire intro. All he wants is to get lucky. Mm-hmm. We're up all night to get lucky. I knew that was coming. <laughs> Lightning reveals our dark corners. Rain washes away our dust. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. It's a thousand years to Christmas, Mr. Holloway. You're wrong. It's here in this library tonight can't be spoiled did will and jim bring it with them on the soles of their shoes <laughs> then we shall have to scrape them and it's like they're edited <laughs>